0: Every book tells two stories. The first is the tale inside the page. The second is a story about his reader. Each book that we choose to keep on our shelves tells a chapter in the story of our lives. So join me, Alex Cole, as I speak to authors, illustrators, publishers and booksellers about their shelf life. My guest on today's episode of Shelf Life is Ed Needham, the award-winning former editor of Rolling Stone, FHM, and Maxim. In 2018, Needham set up Strong Words, a magazine dedicated to all things books. Welcome, Ed. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Strong Words and what made you set it up, uh, first of all?
1: Sure. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, yes, yeah, Strong Words. So. I've been uh, in, as you mentioned, in magazines. You know, most of my adult life, and uh, I still need to make a living. And uh, as people who have been observing the magazine industry will probably have noticed, you know, it's uh, it's not had the happiest uh, last sort of decade or so. You know, jobs are a bit thinner on the ground, and they don't sell as many copies as they used to. But on the upside, it is now possible to actually produce a magazine with relatively few people. You know, it used to take a cast of thousands to make a magazine, and now not so many so I thought well as I still need to do something and I don't know how to do anything else let me see if I can actually do a magazine with as few people as possible how low can I get that number could I get it down to one and uh which is me and I found that you can effectively you know I need some help with the design so I have some uh, somebody who designs it for a couple of weeks but strong words is essentially a, a project a product of uh, of um of a staff of one um and uh and it's books because i think there's a big gap in the in the market for books you know the the, the uk is a very bookish nation the publishing industry in britain generates a, you know an absolute torrent of books every week and yet people are, who like books and who want to know about books are short of um a really credible reliable source of what to read next you know you can you can stumble around in social media and you might get lucky you can ask a friend you can know, take your chances with the broadsheets at the weekend, but as far as sort of really reliable uh, sources of um, information that make you think, yes, that's the book for me, uh, I don't really think there are very many, so that's what Strong Words aims to do, and um, it comes out nine times a year, it's full of books across the spectrum, so it's both fiction, non-fiction, but also, you know, biography, memoirs, um graphic novels I'm very keen on. Um cookbooks and children's books, we'd even mention at the back. So whatever your taste might be, you will almost certainly emerge from an experience of strong words saying, Yes, I must buy at least half a dozen books mentioned here.
0: Nine times a year. So w- which months doesn't it come out? Which months do you have off?
1: <laughs> well, nine it's nine times a year because that's effectively what um I'm I can't I can't go any faster. So it's not as if it is that I have months off, but uh, you know, it, it, uh, it, it sort of it's a slightly calendar agnostic uh, thing, you know, it doesn't obey the um, whatever the solar system has decreed is the length of a month It's I, I put out I, I produce an issue when, uh, you know, when I'm capable of actually, by, you know, filling the pages. So six nine times a year is there is a sort of logic to it because it's halfway between six and 12, which are more sort of conventional magazine you know, publishing schedules, but uh, once every six weeks, I feel is about right.
0: How many books do you read on a given week?
1: Well, when I'm really kind of steaming ahead, uh, when I've got pages to fill and or be preparing to interview people, say, then I will read a book a day. And, um, And so during those six weeks, the very last week tends to be one of just pure production, but um, apart from that, during those five weeks, I will read um, probably yeah maybe about 25 books, I think. So it's uh, it's a high consumption. I get through a lot of pages.
0: Wow, that is um, uh, that's more than me. And I, I, I like to think of myself as quite a big reader. <laughs> um... <laughs> well, fortunately, I so enjoy, do you, read... it. you
1: know, if it, if it yes. were uh, if it were another task, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to find anything like the um, enthusiasm for it. And I think, you know, if it's so, for example, when it comes to doing the, the more sort of technological aspects of uh, producing a magazine or, say, um, things like social media, you know, there's absolutely no way I could devote that amount of time or energy to it because it just doesn't stimulate me in the same way.
0: So, I asked you to pick seven books that either changed your life or influenced it in some way. How did you go about picking those seven books from the sort of the myriad of books that you've read? <laughs>
1: Well, it's I suppose it's tricky, but it's I suppose I've kind of gone with books that have really stayed with me. You know, some books. It's a bit like, um, you know, when the when the Beatles sort of suddenly arrived, they completely sort of change people's worlds? So even there've been lots of bands before and lots of bands afterwards. These, the sort of impact they had on culture left. Uh, you know, whether you like the Beatles or not, but they left this this sort of great sort of um, they made this shock which which led to all sorts of aftershocks you know they resonate they keep on resonating and they're still resonating today so I think these are these are books I've chosen a little bit that are like that you know they came into my life and this I still think about them and they're still um, they're still making themselves you know forcing their way into my imagination um, in one way or another long after I've read them.
0: On that note why don't you tell us what your first choice is?
1: Okay, um, so my first choice is it's an it's a it's an absolute breeze block of a book. Uh, it's by Rebecca West. It's called Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. It is uh, one of the most daunting books I think uh, I've ever come across. It really is enormous. It's the site, you know. It's a it's like a telephone directory, and it's also you know when you open it up and look at the pages, even the print is quite intimidating. You know. I don't know how you are but when I buy books like that's that's quite a that's quite a big issue for me you know if I don't like the look of the print if it looks a bit small or a bit cramped or uh, I don't like the typeface then that's um, I'm out you know and this is one of those books that looks very you know are you sure you want to be in here are you in the right are you in the right book and kind of thing. and um, so it, it's a quite a well-known book and it was I it was uh, I took it on holiday I decided I'm going to try and read this on holiday and I'm going to Go on holiday without a backup you know this is the only way i'm going to read this thing this absolute monster it's about 1200 pages long and uh you know because i if i take a backup i might you know be tempted to put it down and try something else i thought this is no safety net kind of thing and ever since you know i I'd, i've kind of thought if i if i were having read it now i made it made through made it made my way through it on this holiday i think uh, you know, if I were allowed to take one book on a, to a desert island, or if I were ever locked up in prison for the rest of my life and only allowed one book in there with me, then this is the one I would take because you, I feel you could read it, you know, thousands of times and still not get enough. So it's, uh, it was published in 1942. And it's about these uh, sort of journeys that Rebecca West made through the former Yugoslavia in the mid to late 30s when you read the book it's as if she's on one long journey but it's actually a number of journeys stitched together and um which when it was published in 1942 it's about half a million words long and she was kind of at a loss to explain what she'd done you know people said well, what, what is this thing because there'd never really been anything like it before so it's like it's part a sort of travel book but it's part almost sort of visionary um you know uh view of how world war ii happened you know the the, the the you know people um think of the uh, so it has a slightly sort of prophetic quality so she's traveling around in the, in the former yugoslavia well it wasn't, it wasn't former now not then um it was still a relatively new country then it, you know came about at the end of the first world war because of the sort of the, the when the the um, the collapse of the austro-hungarian empire and they sort of jammed all those Former states together into a new country, and so she's traveling around. She goes to these, you know, to each of the states that we know as sort of countries now: Croatia and Serbia and Montenegro. And and she sort of, I suppose, anyone who has ever thought the Balkans, well, that sounds like a funny old place, you know, always sort of arguing with each other. And you get a really profound sense of how these places differ from each other. You know, what makes Croatia different from Montenegro? What makes Serbia? can you know so um uh, different from croatia say and that that definition comes from loads of different places you know so it's partly the austro-hungarian empire and some part some of those places think of themselves as more austrian so they're more western looking and more sort of think of you know look towards germany and culture and uh catholic church they're more cosmopolitan whereas some others are more hungarian and eastern European looking and more so like Serbia orthodox you know more rural and part of its kind of history is a big thing of history so you get this idea of why Kosovo is still such an issue today and I think this is one of the great things about this book is that you see these you know historical resonances that have been there for centuries and Kosovo is the place where in the 14th century the Serbs made their great stand against the Ottomans and lost and they still feel it quite Keenly, You know, this is a big part of their definition of who they are and what makes them Serbs and what it is to be uh, Serb and to die in defence of Serbia is such a great honour. And enough people cling to these ideas, really, really old ideas, you know, entrenched ideas to make life very uncomfortable for each other. So you you get this incredible sense of sort of omnipresence of the past in the present, you know, so even though she's there in the 30s, driving around in a little car and doing this extraordinary thing that I always find with travel books of people actually talking to strangers you know which always sort of blows my mind that you can just kind of turn up in these places and somehow get enmeshed in a a sort of conversation that over time comes to illustrate the entire history of a a place or illuminate somehow an aspect of their culture that makes you realize oh and that's what you know that why that shows you know your. That encapsulates your beliefs in a way in which I'd never thought before. And obviously, the big thing about, uh, or one of the great things about this book uh, and that kind of his period in history is just that you know they could still remember uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and they could still remember the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which is just one of those things in a history book. You think, oh well, that happened on this date, and then the First World War happened. You know, and that's, that's kind of all people tend to know. Whereas it was a, you know, it was an incredible event and she dry, she describes it extraordinarily brilliantly. And uh, well, kind of what a fiasco it was as well, you know, as assassination attempts go, this one was really clumsy and really amateurish. And the people who did it um, really believed in what they were doing. They were um, uh, um, some Serb uh, nationalists who, I think, really believed in their... Um, in their cause, but they um, they were really clumsy. They were really mediocre assassins. And there were about, I think there were seven of them and uh, scattered along the route of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand's um, sort of motorcade. And uh, well, he was there in his uh, ostrich feathers and wasn't very keen on being there. The, the uh, sort of royal family in Austria made him go. He really didn't want to be there. But anyway, he paraded around and the first assassin, I think, uh, just took one look at it and ran away, he got on the train and went to France. And the second one threw his bomb and it didn't go off. And the third one, I think, threw his bomb and it, it, it did go off, but it missed Franz Ferdinand. So he took some um, prussic acid to try and to uh, commit suicide and jumped in the river. And that didn't work either. You know, it's just one fiasco after another. So poor old Gavril Princip, the one who is remembered throughout history as having killed Franz Ferdinand. Um, uh, he was the last one and he'd heard a bomb go off. So he assumed, oh, well, that's, you know, it's happened. It's done. So he wandered off and went and had a cup of coffee. And when he came out, he was walking down the street and he saw the Archduke Franz Ferdinand still in his car who had gone the wrong way up a one way street or something like that. So they were stuck. And they just stepped out in front of him and he thought, well, you know, here's my chance and took his shot and shot the Archduke and he shot, uh, his wife as well, and we, you know, we kind of all know what happens next, but you just kind of see a couple of things. You see how, you know, casual and accidental and chaotic those moments of history can be, but also just this sense of history, just pushing away like gravity. You know, the, this is, uh, it, the, the, it, you kind of feel this, it was just inevitable that these things were going to happen. And even though, you know, where, where history sort of meets the present is kind of messy, like that assassination attempt, it was just going to happen anyway. You know, there's just no way the Austro-Hungarian empire could survive. And I feel it's very sort of relevant to today, you know, and we're doing the same thing, you know, we're parading around in our ostrich feathers thinking that we are responsible for choosing our future, but actually we are being pushed along by the past. You know, we are, the Brexit is a great example of something which which is, you know, we think we chose our destiny, but it's very much, you know, the past just kind of pushing away at people. So we think we're responsible for our future, but we're just like horses being driven along by the by the coachman of history. So this is this is why this is such a phenomenal book. Um, I mean, it's a big, obviously great read. Anyway, you know, it's, every sentence is tremendous, and she's you know her uh, ability to sort of describe these places is just and these people is magnificent. But uh, as an as and as an education about that part of the world, it's uh, peerless. So that's the that's the one I would take with me when I'm blasted into outer space or whatever, whatever history has ready for me in the next chapter.
0: Did it inspire you to go and visit the same places? Did you follow in Rebecca's journey at all?
1: No not really I mean I'd, I'd love to go but I'm not you know I'm not that um, voracious a traveller and uh, I'd, I, I would certainly steer clear of um, anything touristic so even though Croatia sounds like you know the most beautiful country. Uh, I I just dread that. I mean, obviously nobody goes anywhere at the moment. But um, I, I, it still sounds a bit bit too touristic to me. Um, it's I mean, as a place, it sounds absolutely you know fabulous. And uh, but no, it didn't. It didn't tempt me to, you know, get on the Ryanair website.
0: What's your next choice?
1: Okay, my my next my next choice is much easier. Read. Um, so I've chosen the Stella Gibbons, uh, masterpiece, Cold Comfort Farm. So the novel from 1932, which was, um, uh, a sort of satire on a genre, which was, I'm not sure it was even popular even then, but there's a sort of genre of literature called the, the Loman love child genre, which is a very sort of rural, um, doom laden, um, but uh, so, you know, people living in the countryside and absolutely terrible things happen to them. It's associated very much with sort of repressed passions and, uh, you know, people falling in love with a shepherd and uh, never being able to communicate exactly what they feel. Um, uh, you know, G.H. Lawrence is perhaps the most famous sort of, sort of writer who sort of related to this uh to this genre, but um, you know, there's one where, and it's not a D.H. Lawrence. So I can't remember who wrote it, but it's that uh, there's a family is so poor that um, that the many children that this woman has ha- are, are happy to pl- to play with a dead baby. You know that um, that uh, uh, stands in for a toy because they're so they're so poor and impoverished. Uh, so it's that kind of thing. And the punch described this uh, genre as the kind of, or, 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 and Stella Gibbons sort of satire on it as. The kind of story in which peasants have babies in cowsheds and push each other down wells, and so she takes you know this fantastically witty, charming, satirical take on this uh, family. So it's it's a woman who is kind of unwilling to earn her own living. She's a city dweller who's realised she's got to get some money coming in, but she's why should I do that? You know why should I go to work? Who says I have to go to work? So the thing. So she goes and and um, uh, turns up on the doorstep of this rural extended family, the Starkadders who live on a a squalid farm in Sussex. So it's all about her trying to bring her modern common sense to this spectacularly kind of moronic um, uh, rural backward clan living in sheds and uh, uh, trying to get some kind of response out of their animals in deepest Sussex.
0: Does the humour still relate now? Because um, obviously it was written in back in sort of 1932. Do, do you find the humour still relevant?
1: Well, it does, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why I, why I enjoy it so much, and I think that lots of people enjoy it still today. You know, it's not there's nothing antiquated about this. You know, she, she, um, you know, she just really t- clearly took great delight in in pointing out the absurdity of these people, and so there's a couple of things that make this kind of special as well One is, I think being being made to laugh out loud by an author really kind of seals some kind of contracts with them you know you can kind of forgive them an awful lot as a reader if they've made you laugh out loud because you want them to do it again and it stays with you and the other thing is that this um you know this thing which I find myself thinking about a lot is that having written a masterpiece, and it it doesn't necessarily have to be a book, it could be sort of a hit pop song, say, or, uh, you know, or even doing something that's incredible at sport, you know, once you've done this, you are none the wiser as to how you actually managed to do it. So she wrote loads of books after Cold Comfort Farm, and none of them were ever, I think, 16 novels, something like that, you know, quite an output, but none of them were ever as good as Cold Comfort Farm again. You can never recapture that brilliant uh, wit and uh, and humour.
0: This is one of only two fiction novels on your mm. list. Would you say that your most of your reading life is non fiction, or is it just a, a, a quirk of the seven list?
1: Uh, I would agree that most of my reading is non fiction. Yes, I mean obviously I like fiction and. Um, Um, more than happy to read it but but you know there are only seven days in the week and uh, you've got to make some decisions somewhere so I would I tend to choose non-fiction I think I like uh, things which are a bit journalistic somehow you know perhaps you know journalists writing a book in something they're really specialist in Uh, and I really like uh, true crime you know I have a, a massive weakness for Uh, news of uh, spectacular wrongdoing
0: what's your third choice
1: okay number three is uh, some true crime is it's uh, it's, uh, Norman Lewis uh, his book The Honoured Society which was written in 1964 and this is about uh, the Sicilian Mafia and his um, and how the how the sort of how the Sicilian Mafia helped the Um, invasion forces during the second world war in 1943 Um, during the war before the war Mussolini had really come down on the on the mafia and done his best to kind of uproot them and and um, install his own uh, government and a way of you know running the island and the invasion kind of let uh, the mafia back in in a way because they the mafia provided so much help to the Americans, especially, that they um, ended up, you know, talking their way into town halls and becoming mayor's places and this kind of thing. And they basically, you know, the Mafia sort of resumed their um, uh, influence over the island that Mussolini had fought so hard to get rid of. And I think the incredible thing about this book is, I mean, you could pick any paragraph out of it you just open it at random and every paragraph is kind of extraordinary just in you know how uh, sort of antiquated and unique Sicily was at the time so he's, Norman Lewis says uh, you know it's, it's, Sicily was not Italy it's not even part of the Mediterranean it's so kind of different so foreign and un-European you know and so I just picked it up yesterday this bit where people don't people don't live in villages, even though it's a very, you know, very rural place, agricultural place, very richly agricultural, but he says people live in small towns and these towns are on top of the hills and they live on top of, and then they, so they, live in, they sleep in, in the towns on top of the hills and during the day they come out, go to their farmlands and, uh, and they do that because they're terrified of bandits. So, you know, if you lived in a little village in, a, in amongst your field, the bandits would just come and nick your plow and your sheep and uh, burn your house down and everything. So they all live in these, these towns. And the bandits are in kind of league with uh, the shepherds. Uh, shepherds are, are, you know, these ancient uh, people they know all the ancient paths, they know all the, the ancient ways and they are almost like an ancient uh, communication network. So the bandits and the shepherds, they kind of see or saw agriculture as some sort of modern abomination. You know, this is, uh, this is way too advanced for our, you know, ancient Sicilian way of doing things. And somehow, even though you know the mafia is a great elusive um organization you can't just go up to somebody in the street and say so the mafia then uh, are you in it you know uh, how does it work have you killed anyone this kind of you know it's secret it's invisible uh, even though everybody who lives there knows exactly how things are and the extraordinary thing is that for norman lewis he kind of turns up in this place a complete stranger a foreigner and manages to somehow extract this great story of their history, their you know how it works, the folklore, and a lot of it is you know a lot of these things that have are believed to have happened, maybe didn't you know in subsequent sort of readings of uh, or reading other historians, some of them disagree with Norman Lewis and the things that he said happened with the details of the invasion and everything, and so maybe it's just mafia folklore. Um, but nonetheless, you know to to be able to paint this picture of um, an entire island society that is completely invisible to everybody else. You can't, you know, the, the, our senses cannot are not enough to perceive it. You have to somehow find a way in and talk to people or, I don't know, I don't know how he did it. It's almost like a magic trick, you know, from just going there and watching, or somehow he assembles this absolutely fabulous, piece of writing about uh an, an invisible an invisible society so that's that's why i love that book so much i mean it's just uh, you know you really could you you can pick it up at any at, and, and open it any page and you're just in you know that's the rest of your day kind of ruined you know you've got to sit down and and uh, and go to the end with that and so he's also you know a great journalist uh, you know he's very very sort of quiet uh, private man i think he wasn't interviewed he didn't, didn't do his first interview for a magazine until he was 75 you know he said uh and his bi he told his biographer that um his biographer asked about how many times he'd been married or something like that and he said i don't, I don't want to talk about that uh, because um you've got you've got to keep some secrets from your family kind i of think uh he's, <laughs> he's a very enigmatic individual so i kind of really admire his uh I admire his style as well but um I, I hugely enjoy that book, The Honoured Society.
0: Maybe that's a trick he learned directly from the Mafia of never reveal too much and <laughs> just keep too close yes, to keep... place his chest.
1: <laughs> keep a bit of mystery about you at all time, most definitely.
0: Did he ever, that you know of, face any sort of consequence from publishing this book? Uh, or was it all done with the blessing of the Mafia?
1: I honestly don't know um yeah I, I just don't know the answer to that question I mean you, you always wonder you know when these things come out you know do you do these people really want this uh you know um story exposed um uh I guess if he didn't cause too much uh trouble for them then um you know maybe uh, maybe they, they're not that bothered but uh I you know I've been to Sicily and I went to Corleone, which is a, the great one of the great sort of mafia um, towns, and also made very much made famous by uh, the Godfather movies. And uh, there was absolutely nothing when I, when I was there in the mid nineties. Maybe it's different now, but there's absolutely nothing, not one thing—in Corleone, which where they had kind of in any way taken an advantage of their fame. And you know, you know, you go to some places, and people will there will always be some entrepreneur. Who's made some cafe or museum or something out of the slimmest uh, historical connection to you know, some obscure writer? Um, whereas uh, Corleone in, in Sicily, which has this massive sort of reputation as being the absolutely terrifying uh, home of a branch of the mafia, has done absolutely nothing to take advantage of it. So uh, I don't think that's, an, that's uh, any accident. No. Someone has said, we're not having that, you know. No cafe, no museum.
0: Don't want to draw too much attention. To <laughs> What's your next choice?
1: Okay, my next one is another, uh, what I think is an absolutely superb work of journalism, which is a book called Ghetto Side. And it's by an American journalist called Jill Leovi. And it's set in Los Angeles and it surrounds the killing uh, in a neighbor, drive by killing of a young man young black man whose father is also a policeman and his father is a detective and is also unusually lives in, you know, lives in the neighborhood where the crime happened. American, you know, detectives tend to live uh, outside, as far away from the sort of the places which they have to patrol or where they're, you know, stationed as possible. It's not done to live in the same neighborhood for some reason. So anyway this uh journalist jill leovi i think i can't remember who she writes for perhaps the la times she is effectively stationed at this police police station uh and has been for 11 years you know so this is this is the kind of journalism that i really love where people effectively give their entire life to a to a story you know or immerse themselves as far as it's possible to immerse oneself and this story is, uh, so she, this is a, a, an account of the police's attempts to find um, who perpetrated this, uh, this drive by. It's completely senseless. The kid hadn't done anything. They didn't know who it was. Uh, it wasn't, there was no score settling. You know, I th- it may, perhaps it was a sort of mistaken identity. Maybe it was just sort of random lunacy. Um, and normally these cases, there just isn't enough information they, they, they sort of grind to a halt because the police run up against uh, uh, sort of uh, people's inability to help them. And so one of the great things about this book is it explains that, why people don't help the police. Because from the outside, which is slightly possibly sort of racist perspective of, you know, you think, well, why don't why don't people help the police? You know, of course, it would make sense if they if they, just, if they said what they'd seen. Uh, then of course it would make it easier for the police to you know deal with crime in these uh, neighborhoods And the point that she makes uh, really brilliantly she said well imagine you know in the in the sort of frontier times if you were a, if you were going out to the frontier and you were a sort of settler or a, a pioneer then it was up to you to protect yourself. you were responsible for your family, for your animals, whatever it was that was presenting a a, um, a threat to your um, security, it was up to you to deal with it. And then as, you know, towns grew, um, you know, the sort of United States spread westward, They became a bit of a compromise where they, where, you know, society, what do you want to call it, said, uh, okay, well, look, we will protect you. We will, uh, you know, look after your security and your, and justice and law and order, whatever you want to call it. But the, but there's a compromise and the compromise is that you have to give up settling scores on your own you know you can't go around short of shooting people because you don't like them so this is the deal you know we'll protect you and that, and people generally thought well that's a fantastic deal because then now i can travel a bit and i don't have to worry about my family and and it enabled you know um, commerce and to spread and people to settle and peace, and it was a much more peaceful time so what's happened now in these places like you know the ghetto? Los of parts of what, you know this problematic area of los angeles that she's writing about is she said well look the, the 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 city is not keeping its side of the bargain anymore they're not protecting us so people have given up their ability to protect themselves and then the police come in and ask questions and uh, at the end of the day they disappear again so we're not protected so of course we're gonna we're gonna do we effectively we protect ourselves by not helping the police if we help the police the gangs come and fire a few shots off at us or or threaten us in the street or whatever so this sort of refusal to help the police when the police come and say what did you see they say i didn't see anything it is not a an unwillingness to help it is a desire to protect themselves and to stop themselves from being in turn attacked and uh, lose their property and driven out i'd never heard it expressed in those terms before and um i just you know that's that's just stuck with me so much and I feel it applies to so many well just just a reminder that you just can't assume you know why people are behaving the way they do there's often a really good alternate explanation for be, for behavior which outwardly feels difficult to um to fully explain
0: so does this book Just concentrate on the one crime that is sort of described on in the blurb, or uh, and but then expands into the history of the whole policing nature as well.
1: Well, it's more it is more about this this particular crime and the efforts and it takes um, because so many of these crimes go unsolved. This one was an exception, and it was an exception because there was one detective who decided he was going to do something about it. Uh, and went to extraordinary lengths to um, uh, to bring somebody to, to justice. Uh, and so her point is that also, you know, it can, these crimes can be solved, but they, at the same time, they can't just rely on one detective doing something exceptional. And it, and it shouldn't be like that. You know, it shouldn't be a, it's almost like an outlier of a case. You know, this one detective who's gone against... Um, you know normal practice and ignored sort of protocol and things like that be- and to do things um you know uh, because he thought it was right you know that's just not how the sort of police work so it's a, it's an it's really about the exceptionalism of this piece of detective work rather than a big uh, picture view of uh, life in i can't remember which la neighborhood it is
0: how does it tally with what we've seen um, sort of with the Black Lives Matter movement and, and the death of George Floyd? Did, did, When you read, when you heard about that stuff, did you think back to this book and think, oh, that kind of I can see how that's happened? Or does it not? Does it inhabit a different world?
1: Not really, because it's not um, it's not an instance of. Uh, uh, a murder or a killing committed by. The police it's not a sense of that level of injustice coming into their community it's uh, this in a way these are the kind of crimes that are that people are become a bit inured to you know the, the drive-by shootings or accidental shootings or you know people being killed for really you know mediocre I don't know tiny sums of money or people being slighted I and mean, one of the things another point of this book actually that's really interesting is the role of sort of of uh, women in gangs prov- provoke encouraging men to um, kill each other or threaten each other and how you know this there's a sort of um, uh, you say sort of dynamic within the gang of uh, of gangs or kind of gang structures of the girls kind of egging m- the men on to I don't know, stand up for themselves or don't let yourself be pushed around and to go and settle scores long before scores need settling, you know, or in the most, uh, in the most violent way.
0: What's your next choice?
1: All right. So more journalism. (laughs) So I really like Michael Lewis. Um, And uh, so my next book is Michael Lewis's book, the, The Big Short. Which, was, which is uh, his book, I think it came out in 2009, perhaps, about the financial crisis. And one of the great things about Michael Lewis, uh, his, his ability to sort of take something which is really complicated, or at least things which seem complicated to outsiders, and make sense of them to the uninitiated. So the, the financial crisis, um, uh, as seen by Michael Lewis, is something which came about Excuse me, from uh, American banks lending over lending to um, uh, mortgage borrowers and then using these borrowings to construct all these really elaborate, impenetrable, incomprehensible ways of lending money and, and overextended themselves. And then when interest rates went up, the whole thing collapsed. But the complexity of it is immense. And in fact, most of the people actually involved in the in that aspect of the financial crisis of making these products, um, these derivatives uh, and selling them didn't know what they were. They didn't know what they were doing. And they, you know, it was their arrogance and hubris that uh, made them think that they were brilliant because they were making lots of money at the time, but they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea what they were creating. And Michael Lewis explains this uh, absolutely superbly so the, the complexities of it, but he comes at it from a really brilliant angle, which is he finds a number of people I think four or five people who realized long before the financial crisis they could they were a the few that saw which way the wind was blowing. So most people thought this is great. We're making loads of money and it's really easy and there's no comeback. You know, uh, we get all the profits, but we're not in any way responsible if it all goes wrong. So brilliant, let's do more of that. Because Michael Lewis found these people who thought, hold on, this is not gonna last and it's not gonna last for these reasons and it's not gonna last because, um, or if it, when it doesn't last, we need to work out how to bet against it. is the complexity in itself. And so they do, these these people, when the whole thing does go um, over the waterfall, make an absolute fortune by betting against it. But there are another kind of brilliant aspect is that, uh, obviously, the, these are people who are investing money on behalf of other people. All these investors are not grateful at all, you know, even though they've made loads of money, the agony that they have to go through by these people saying, look, hold on, hold on, it's all going to collapse and you're going to make several millions of pounds you know there's no there's no gratitude at the end of it there's no kind of thank you so much i was wrong you have made me rich i really appreciate it they're all "Mm, i didn't enjoy that very much and uh not a word of thanks
0: obviously this is around the time of the last big crash in 2008 Mm. which had uh lasting impacts on economies all around the world from your point of view what were you were you in magazines still at this time uh at the time so this was this would have been yeah 2008 2009
1: i had just moved back i had been living in new york and i just moved back to the uk and i'd set up an online publishing company and uh i was publishing we were doing all sorts of things but we were very closely related it was there was a, it had a lot to do with sports and a lot to do with the betting industry and Obviously, the betting industry is all about uh, people believing they can see into the future, which, let me tell you, no one can. And uh, d- d- nobody has yet worked out how to look around corners. You know, it just can't be done. But it doesn't stop pundits, and whether this is sporting pundits or financial pundits, even though they've got the most dismal track record, you know, if you're trying predicting something is gonna, either going to go up or down, even with guesswork, you ought to be able to get it right 50% of the time. So these are people who get it who have an even worse record than that uh are still out there even today you know telling people what's going to happen, how the world is, where they should put their money and uh so the 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 you know this is just another aspect of um the big short is that you just shouldn't really listen to pundits you know and you certainly shouldn't listen to pundits who are just who are basing their uh view of the world on what happened yesterday you know it's like the uh, it's like the story of the turkey who every day of the year this f- lovely farmer comes and gives the turkey a giant bowl of uh, grain and the turkey thinks it's great you know so every day i get another bowl of grain every day I get another bowl of grain here we are getting close to christmas i expect today is going to bring me another bowl of grain and uh, you know one day it gets a nasty shock because things uh, things just haven't corresponded to the pattern he's established in his mind before and that's that's just how so many pundits are this is it's happened before so this is how, how it'll happen again and sometimes it will but you can't you know you can't build a world on on that belief
0: it's uh it's obviously i mean it's taken a while for things in the economy to start to get better from 2008 uh, i'm not going to say recover because i don't think it had reached that point But obviously now, um, we've got this temporary setback of uh, lockdown. Mm. Uh, How has that affected both the magazine industry and particularly your your own magazine? How have you coped with that?
1: Right. Well, magazine industry has been in, you know, has been having had its issues, you know, for longer than the period of lockdown. You know, the whole, it's not responded particularly well to digital technology and uh and so the kind of gaps that magazine the gaps in people's lives that magazines used to fill say you know taking a train into work or um uh you know while you're having your breakfast or whatever something like that you might look at a magazine those gaps have gone you know those gaps are completely occupied by social media now or you know portable electronic technology so you know magazines has has its trouble the, the problem with lockdown has not been especially significant because it it just means i've taken my magazines off the shelves of newsstands um and but i still i sell most of my copies on subscription so that that obviously hasn't changed and if people want people would like to subscribe to strong words or, or even buy a single issue they can at my website which is strong-words.co.uk and don't forget the hyphen um so i think magazines are they're in a sort of state now where the the, the sort of golden age of magazines you know where they sold hundreds of thousands of copies are, are kind of gone but there isn't you know but they're still with us and they're still beautiful they're still lovely to hold they still smell great and and they still kind of establish a sort of connection with people in a way that social media can't, you know, there is an aura of credibility and um, uh, trust that emanates from the pages of a glossy magazine that doesn't come from social media at all. So even though social media has the reach, I still think magazines have a, a, you know, a voice of uh, authenticity that is hard to find in this world.
0: It's a bit like physical books, it's that moment of you want to be able to just sit down and read something and not be interrupted. And, you know, it's that I always find reading a magazine is slightly calming, um, yes. more so than looking at your phone.
1: Most definitely, yes. I think, uh, and I think the effect lasts as well. It's it, in it, the sensation endures, whereas, you know looking at your phone, you can swim around in there for hours and finally come up for air and realize, well, I, I don't remember any of that, you know or none of it has made an, made an impact on me. Whereas in magazines and books, there is something about the printed page, about ink on paper, that uh, it carries an air of uh, substance, you know, it might be just absolute twaddle, but there is just something about the printed word on a piece of paper that makes you think, well, this is significant, you know, this is in the, in the world of, um, you know, something which somebody has committed to paper, it's there, and it's fixed, um, whereas social media can come and go at the push of a button um uh, and there is I definitely agree there's something calming about it there's something reassuring is it has a sort of slight bricks and mortar feel as well the ink on paper
0: what's your next choice
1: okay so uh, this is my other novel which is uh, Edward St Orbin and his uh, Patrick Melrose novels there's five of them and this is a sort of it's sort of, I don't, I don't know what people call People call it auto fiction. Sometimes it's based on the author's own life and his sort of early early life or until he was sort of youngish uh, adult. The last one, I think he's married and has children. but, um, but he's He grew up in a sort of very upper class family, his parents' own half of France, or something like this. But um, everybody around him was awful, absolutely appalling. You know, his parents are dreadful and and he had to deal with you know with this with unbelievable abuse at the hands of his father um and uh, his parents died and then he he um responded to this trauma that he'd experienced as a child by becoming an alcoholic drug addict as a young man and the i mean even though it's a brilliant absolutely brilliant writing anyway just that you know even if he were writing about a I don't know train set or something like that would be brilliant he's so you know really witty really arch and so kind of clever but the great you know one of the things that really registered with me with this book is that when he describes the abuse that he experienced from his father his father basically raped him as a child uh, is the ability of a writer to kind of commit these most awful things to paper these are kind of you know thing that's the most shameful, the most humiliating, the most appalling things that happen to you. For a writer to actually put them down on a piece of paper and be prepared to, for other people to read them is an extraordinary thing. And there's a fantastic comment by George Orwell who said autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. And by that he means you know you. you you can only trust what somebody is saying when they when they're prepared to tell you something which they find it even virtually impossible to tell themselves then you can believe the rest of it and by you know on on the other hand you know when you sometimes you come across writers who you you can just tell they're not giving you the whole stuff they're giving you some of the some of the bad stuff but they're not giving you the whole thing and that's when i think you kind of lose um a bit of respect for those writers when they, you know, they're they're not going to, they don't, they they won't take you the whole way. You kind of got to fill in the gaps or, you know, they pull their punches somehow. So this I think is why this, uh, you know, this is such a superb, superb sort of set of novels, just this ability to put one's sort of shame and humiliation in the context that is, you know, just, it's really rare to hear somebody be so, um, you know, take somebody along with them on such a, you know, awful experience. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of stuck for words a little bit there, you know, to but to externalize the worst things that have happened to you like that and do it without sort of photographic horrors, but just sort of leave you in, leave you in no doubt what happened. That really, you know, that really lasts. I, I can't believe anyone has read that book. and forgotten about it
0: did you watch the tv adaptation of it with um i watched some of it
1: i watched some of it and i know a lot of people liked it but i it didn't really work for me yeah i managed an episode but uh yeah i didn't make it i didn't manage to make it onto episode two
0: what do you think about uh tv adaptations in general with i mean particularly with fiction i guess is it it, a lot of people have differing views some some people don't watch what they've read um where, where do you stand on that um
1: ah i don't know i mean obviously the the book is always better uh i think you know certainly with movies you know there are very very few movies where the the movie is better than the book i think there's kind of the wizard of oz and that's about it but uh um yeah I don't know I mean I don't know I'm not sure I have an opinion am I, am I allowed to not have an opinion you know
0: what? I wish I wish more people would say they didn't have an opinion just in general on things you don't have to have one um you you read an awful lot uh, would you ever consider writing either something non-fiction or even autobiographical fiction is that anything that would ever interest you
1: well, I would. I'd love to write a book. I mean, I'd love I love the sort of vain notion of being, you know, having having a book with my name on it, which I'm sure is a thrill for a lot of people. Um, I, I mean, I don't have any time at the moment. That's the problem. There's, there's just the 24 hours in the day. And uh, well, I did I did read a book recently about um, Vogue. There's a fantastic book coming out it was about the history of Vogue and Condé Nast, who was one of the first owners of Vogue, and. Um, of and one of and publishers and he uh, he used to do an he used to do an 18-hour day which made me think well maybe I'm not working enough you know maybe I could squeeze a bit more out um so I would certainly like to write a book um yes I would love to that's, that seems like a very elegant way to make a life make a living but uh you know there's a lot of people writing and not so many earning that's the that's the weakness of that industry I think do you think it would be fiction
0: or non-fiction
1: that you wrote? Uh, well, I did actually write a, a novel once to just see if I could do it and to see the kind of discipline involved. And one of the reasons I quite fancied myself was because I, I, I think I'd just started doing strong words, or I was thinking about doing strong words, and I'd read about Frederick Forsyth and when he wrote The Day of the Jackal. And he sat down on something like January the 2nd and had finished it by the middle of February, and uh, the, there were all sorts of. You know, he he kind of had to do it. He was out of money, and he thought, "Well, I got to, you know, this this was this was the this was his best idea to make some money." And uh, so he just sat down and and bashed it out. So I thought, "Well, if he could do it in thirty five days, you know, then then maybe I could do come up with something in thirty five days." But it actually, you know, on and off, it took about a year. And when I'd finished, it was it wasn't very good anyway. So uh, it was a very um, it was the kind of experience that made me realise uh, there's a lot more to this than I thought, uh, which is that any new experience, right? You, you know, any new experience, you're going to be naive or any new task, you're going to be you, you, you're naturally inexperienced and, uh, and naive about it. So I feel if I were to, to, to attempt a novel again, I'd have a much clearer idea of what's involved. So I certainly don't consider it a wasted um opportunity uh but i you know as you know i kind of lean towards nonfiction. anyway i like the idea of research and um you know investigation
0: what's your seventh choice?
1: all right so the this one is another great work of research and investigation it's an american another american journalist and the book is uh it's called the devil's dashboard by a writer called david talbot another very uh, you know person with a a tremendous CV of having written for all the magazines one would wish to wish to write for and um, this is a book about the founding of the CIA and specifically about Alan Dallas and I think it's particularly sort of relevant today because you know you hear a lot of talk in American politics certainly on the sort of Trump side of American politics of the deep state and this has come a sort of top, sort of popular f- phase in current sort of partisan rows over American politics and it, and it's kind of used in a way in which it wasn't before so now it's just come to me people call you know talk about the deep state they just mean the political Washington establishment but this book is more about the how the CIA did become sort of capable of operating without any political oversight when it first emerged in the sort of forward straight after the second world war and in the 50s and Alan Dulles, who's one of the most important people in its establishment, he thought Americans uh, had picked the wrong opponent in World War II. You know, he always felt that America should be fighting, should have been fighting against Russia, and uh, not against the Nazis. And so at the end of World War II, there's a great deal of paranoia. World War III would be along at any moment, and uh, America were gonna ha- American the USA and Russia were gonna have to settle their differences. And so Dallas was a big part of um, this program of recruiting uh, loads of former Nazis into the American intelligence, medical, military um, uh, system, which is always, you know, always astonishing because if you look at uh, so much sort of post-war Nazi Uh, you know, movies about Nazis and American films about Nazis, about how um, it was constantly sort of these people had to be hunted down. They were, you know, other countries were helping them and the the Americans were uh, eager to find out where they were and bring them to justice. Whereas, in fact, you know, few countries did more than America to open the doors to former Nazis and some quite grim ones as well because they wanted their expertise in the rocket program and things like this. But also to help them set up spy networks. So obviously the CIA is a foreign, you know, operates outside of the United States and in espionage um, gathering. And they wanted these these Nazis, who had been who already had networks across Europe, to um, to help them. So the CIA got off to, <laughs> to a rather a rather sort of compromised start with some of these people. Uh, and so this is sort of history of the CIA up to, uh, I'm not sure quite how far it goes, but it certainly goes beyond the, uh, you know, the sort of greatest uh, American post-war story, the um, assassination of John Kennedy, you know, which is still, as far as most people are concerned, I think remains to be uh, uh, solved properly. And... Uh, So that's what it is. It's the the CIA and their history of black ops and their involvement in behind the scenes in American Merck.
0: I was looking into this one when you uh, sent it across, and I was just a little surprised of sort of how unknown this story is, really, considering its sort of implications on on how everything that came after it. And it's a bit like what you were saying before about sort of our present situation being driven by the past and, and just its involvement in the assassination of JFK, which I don't think I've ever heard that connection been made before that, that potentially the CIA were responsible for that chain of events.
1: Right, well, who knows if they were or they weren't, you know, they would, you know, according to the official, story, you know, they had nothing to do with it, but uh, there, you know, there is an entire library of material on, um, you know, some of it is absolutely right out there, kind of loony stuff, but there are a lot of, you know, very, um, people have written, you know, uh, people who you have to take seriously have written a great length on some of the, you know, many, many of the mysteries that surround the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And, uh, you know, if I ever, if I were ever to win the lottery, uh, which you know I have visualized many times. You know I'm, I feel I'm doing all the right things uh, to make it happen. Uh, but if I were ever to win, you know, this is one of the things that I would like. To, I'd like to make the definitive documentary about what we currently know about Kennedy and the um, the assassination. You know, because there are just still too many versions of what happened and too many versions of just who was who and who was doing what. I think uh, you know the the it's time for you know, if, maybe that would be my great journalistic project, the, uh, to pull all the Kennedy strands together.
0: The, um, the, the five non-fiction titles that you've chosen inevitably have some sort of historical um, context to them, but nothing really about the history of the UK. Is, is, that, is that an area that you don't, you don't read or it just didn't make the list? Hmm,
1: that's a good question. Um. Ah, I mean these the over. I mean I know this is only audio, but you can see on the camera. This is over the, my shoulder. These are my these are my history books. So, I guess in history it tends to be more sort of Second World War and then um and then uh, America, uh, and Russia. Um, I find Russia is a country that just holds the gaze more than any other. Um, you know, it's just such a extraordinary place um but yes i suppose i suppose not not a great deal of uh not not a great deal of uk
0: no do you think that's because it's less of a mystery to you you know or you think you know yeah we all have these preconceptions about the country that we live in whereas actually you can look objectively at another country say like america and and russia uh
1: maybe i mean obviously it's a lot smaller um and (laughs) it tends to be a lot more stable um I think uh, you know. I read a lot of, perhaps a lot of biographies of of British people, and uh, there's an extraordinary amount of you know books coming out um, all the time on sort of non you know nonfiction subjects. Uh, you know, music. There's some great books about the pandemic and um, what it's meant for the NHS. Um, maybe they're sort of they're slightly more slightly more fragmented. Um, in the uh, Britain whereas the you know the more sort of foreign topics tend to perhaps be a bit more overarching but no I don't know I know that's a very poor answer it's another one but I don't really have an
0: answer for that's fine <laughs> um, this is normally the point where I ask which book if I made you pick just one of them uh, mm. you'd pick but I think you've kind of answered that already with with Black Lamb but I'll give you a chance to answer it in case you've changed your mind in the hour since.
1: Uh, it would have to be that one, I think, just because it's so—it's just so dense and so uh, rich. It's—it's it's, uh, slightly cheating, you know, because it's like take, taking uh, fifteen books in one or something like that.
0: What's next for you, and specifically for Strong Words? Where do you see that going in the future?
1: Well, I mean, it's pretty simple, really. I mean, I set it up to as a way of making a living as a journalist. So my goal is just to sell, you know, to sell more copies. And uh, uh, it, you know, it would be nice if it grew into other things. I could certainly, you know, see myself doing some other magazines and turning it into a little publishing company. But uh, my goal is just to, you know, in the in the sort of old uh, again, in the old days of magazines, everybody it took all sorts of different skills. But everybody who Uh, you know even though people were expert in their own skill they tended to be completely ignorant in all the other skills that were involved so I feel I'm I'm very strong on the editorial side but when it comes to marketing my abilities are somewhat limited so this is the this is what I've really got to concentrate on is how to how to sell stuff how to persuade people to buy my magazine this is my goal for 2021.
0: What's the skill that you've discovered that you have that maybe you thought you didn't have whilst uh, in previous life so is there something in the magazine that you think oh I, I can actually do this <laughs> <laughs> um well the,
1: the what I was worried about what I was worried that I wouldn't be able to do was kind of sustain the quality because it, one of the things I tried to do with Strong Words is to make it an an, an interesting and entertaining read in itself so even though you know, maybe you might be reading about a book that you know from the outset you're not going to be in, you know, you're not going to be buying. I still want my writing about that book to be interesting to whoever picks it up. So obviously when a, when you pick a magazine up, you could open it any, you know, you start at any page. You know, It's almost like a random point. So you never quite know what you're going to get. So if you have, so whatever page you come to, I want people to be thinking, well, and perhaps not the book for me, but I really enjoyed reading that or it made me laugh or there was a piece of information in there that I wasn't expecting that I hadn't thought of before or that person sounds interesting or you know all those many things that people respond to so that's that's been the the challenge I think with uh with Strongwise to keep that I was worried that you know just grinding it out I don't do anything else you know and I do this seven days a week so I was a bit worried that perhaps the quality might um slip at some point right once I started cutting corners (laughs) but uh fortunately that hasn't happened so far touch wood
0: Ed, thank you very much for your time.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: My guest on this episode of Shelf Life was Ed Needham, the man behind Strong Words magazine all about reading and books. You can check out the magazine yourself by visiting strong-words.co.uk. Join me again next time when another guest will be exploring their Shelf Life.